So at this point, things get dark and just be aware we're going to describe some fairly horrible things, horrible eruptions of macabre evil, and we're going to frame it in a discourse that makes sense. We examine these diseases so that we can formulate some cures. We're going to talk about that. So we're going to talk about a couple of massacres and the kind of violence that went on over the course of the French Revolution. Not wildly unusual for all kinds of revolutions, which are rages against the family masked as political ideals. We're going to talk about the mob. Now, the mob we look at in the modern world, and we know it's been very propagandized, had 12 years of indoctrination and social media and uh, all of the hive mind splitting off into separate realities that is occurring when you can curate your own pretend information. And this happens on the left and the right. But the left is more primed for it from government schools. So, so we think of the modern mob as misinformed, as lied to, as propagandized, as sort of brainwashed. Well, and brainwashed is not quite the right term because at least washing makes something clean. It's uh, reprogrammed, you could say, in the shadows of lies, or by the shadows of lies. In the French Revolution, of course, remember, I mean, how much, what percentage of the mob couldn't even read and had no access to information other than rumors, had no access to any kind of perspectives other than self-interested orators whipping them up to a hatred against authority. So that's important to remember. This level of lack of access to any kind of primary information, that it's all coming through filters, and that we have a group of people, of course, spectacularly uninformed and therefore able to be led in any particular direction. You can think of propaganda like a set of train tracks, like you go this way or you go that way, but you're kind of limited. But people who are shapeless clay, who are uninformed completely or almost completely, those people are more like people in the middle of the desert. There, it's a variety of mirages that can be established in various places that they can stagger towards or they can be herded like sheep on an open field. It's not a set of train tracks. It's a whole different kind of situation. So it's important to remember just how malleable the mob was. And this is not to say that people have no responsibility, although they were malleable in the factual sense, they had been raised, of course, in Christianity, in strict, often mostly Catholic, of course, Christianity. So they had that aspect of things to guide them, which is less than we generally have today, at least most of us. So just wanted to get a sense of that. The other thing I wanted to mention is that for the most part, People are not engaged in politics. They are engaged in punching at the shadows of the family with the warped boxing gloves of polysyllabic delusions. That's a slightly poetic way of putting it, but I'll give you sort of my own personal example. So what do I not accept? I do not accept the traditional rules of society. I do not accept the value coercive institutions, and I do not accept superstition and mysticism and the source of a lot of contemporary morality. Well, what does that translate to? I'm, I was better off without my father, and I grew up without a father, and I have flourished thereby. So the idea for me of a voluntary society, of a stateless society, is sort of embedded in my entire experience. That in the absence of imprinted rules, I was able to come up with my own validated and effective and better rules. I was better off without authority. Because I grew up without authority, I got to think for myself and reason for myself. And therefore, the idea that society would be better off without coercive authority, is based to some degree on my own experience. Now, this doesn't mean that I'm right or wrong. I'm just telling you the source of why I'm able to even think along these lines in many ways. The purpose of philosophy is to take your provoked prejudices and make sure that they're rational and discard those that aren't. Like if you were a kid who loved drawing and painting, creating art, it doesn't dictate whether you'll create beautiful or ugly art. And the fact that 
I didn't have any particular respect for social rules when I was growing up doesn't mean that not having respect for social rules is good or bad. I'm just telling you the source of my skepticism. It doesn't mean that my skepticism is validated. In fact, particularly when you go against social rules, you absolutely need to validate your skepticism. Otherwise, you're just being pushed around by history. And most people are sort of pinballs, bing, 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 being pushed around, bouncing off, bumping off particular kinds of history. My mother was mystical, superstitious, into, you know, psychic phenomenon and ESP and, and telekinesis and all kinds of 70s-based nonsense. And so I became a staunch empiricist. That doesn't mean that empiricism is, quote, right or wrong relative to mysticism. I'm just telling you why I had the urge in that direction. The urge in that direction has to be validated by philosophy. A scientist who's raised by a mystic may become a scientist in part because of that mysticism. That doesn't mean that he doesn't have to validate his scientific theories according to the scientific method. Social rules. So coercive authority, I was better off without it. Maybe society would be too. Social rules are often inflicted by elder siblings. I have a bad relationship. or had a bad, haven't had a relationship for decades, but had a bad relationship with an elder sibling. And therefore, for me, social rules didn't really matter. So anti-mysticism, anti-superstition, anti-coercive authority, skeptical of social rules. This comes out of family origin story. It comes out of history. Doesn't mean I'm right. Doesn't mean I'm wrong. I'm just telling you I know that that's where it comes from. And philosophy is all the more needed because... We are tempted to take our personal histories and write them into factual morals. I don't hate my father, never hated my father, didn't need my father, or at least it felt that way. And as it turns out in my life, since I have done far better than my parents, it turns out I didn't really need them and, in fact, was better off without them, right? And these are just facts. So the idea that we're better off without coercive authority, the idea that we're better off without inflicted social rules, the idea that we're better off opposing mysticism and superstition and anti-rationality and anti-empiricism of every kind is one of the driving motives behind me. And I would have become radicalized in the absence of philosophy, or I was radicalized in the absence of philosophy. Philosophy allows you to validate your goals, preferences, and desires, to shape them, to hone them, to make sure that they are not mere bounce back. So you can bounce back from evil to good, but you need to validate it to make sure you're not bouncing back from evil to just some other evil or some other manipulation or some other control. So the reason I'm saying this is me, right, and pretty, pretty rational guy in the modern world, I think about a barely educated peasant in France in the late 18th century. What is he angry at? Is he angry at some abstract political principle? Does he thirst for political liberty? Does he understand the separation of powers? Does he yearn for the separation of church and state? Does he yearn for laissez-faire, Austrian-style, Milton Friedman-style free markets? No. No, he doesn't yearn for any of that. He's angry at having been wrapped in confining bandages and hung from a hook as a baby. He's angry at having been beaten and starved and coerced and whipped and abandoned and half breastfed by cold-eyed murder merchants in shawls. He's angry at starvation. He's angry at having been told he's evil for drawing breath. He's angry at original sin. He's angry at having been brutalized and condemned and put down. And he's angry at seeing the people who were supposed to protect him throw him to the wolves, and in fact be the wolves themselves at times. He's angry at staggering with exposed ribs, hollow eyes, and a sunken chest past palaces full of fat nobles complaining about gout. He's angry at the injustice. He's angry at the violence. He's angry at the pretense of virtue. But does he have abstract values that he is fighting for? It is my deep belief, and has been for many, many decades, that if we were able to see someone's life, like 99.999% of people, if we were able to see their lives in every detail, we would absolutely be able to understand their abstract opinions, their political opinions, their philosophical 
opinions. We have an epidemic of fatherlessness and we have an epidemic of wanting to rewrite the entire rules of society. We have a parentless society. We have parents who abandoned their children. In the French Revolution, preceding the French Revolution, we had an epidemic of unparenting. Unparenting. Now, unparenting, of course, is the wet nurses, it is the abandonment of children, it's the hostility towards children, it's the hanging of babies on hooks and letting lice gnaw at them and ticks and fleas gnaw at them. But it's even wider and deeper than that. When parents are denied by their society the basic requirements of life to feed and take care of their children, then parents feel unbelievable levels of helpless rage. I don't know if you've ever been a parent who needs something desperately and has to rely on some external thing you have no particular control over. It's, you know, it can be quite tortuous, I imagine, right? You need some signature, you need some stamp, you need, like, you had to go to the city to work, but you didn't have the right piece of paper, so you had to starve outside the city walls with your children. The humiliation and the rage that is brought about in the hearts, minds, souls, and gut of parents who are denied by their society the basic requirements that they need to feed their children. You feel intense humiliation, particularly men. Women too, obviously, but I think a little bit more men because we want to provide and protect. And if we can't provide because of our society and we can't protect because of our society, we start to feel an inchoate rage towards that society. And we would all understand why. If your society is kind of killing you off and killing off your bloodline, then your society is expendable. When you remove from parents the ability to feed and clothe and shelter their children, your society is not long in the lasting. And we can understand this genetically. If conformity to your social rules, if conformity to the laws and rules of your society gives you a reasonable chance of survival, then you will obey those rules. If those rules cannot be obeyed, or even if they are obeyed, your bloodline is starving to death, then you might as well have a revolution, because your bloodline is going to end without one. This kind of desperation, it's a tipping point, right? Remember, the genes want to survive. If the environment is making survival impossible, then society in its current form, becomes expendable. I talked about this uh, many, many years ago that society, particularly with young men, compels obedience from young men providing, by providing them opportunities to have a job, have a career, settle down, buy some property, have a family, have kids. And when society is unable to provide these things to the young men in particular, the young men turn feral. They, they no longer are rewarded for obedience, right? If it's all stick and no carrot, then the stick wielder becomes expendable in the eyes of his victims. So to understand why there's such rage, we look at these mobs and we say, my gosh, how could they do such things? Well, you have to be tortured for a long time before you turn to mass murder. You have to be brutalized for a long time before you turn to torture. And a leader who suffers along with his followers like Napoleon, who sometimes would ride out in the front of his army. A leader who suffers along with his followers is loved and respected often. But a leader who cancels obedience while indulging himself, a leader who becomes fat as his followers starve, a leader who parades his wealth while scratching every piece of shredded gold out of the eyes of his citizens, that leader, hypocrisy, brings the greatest rage, because hypocrisy can't be solved. A leader who's willing to suffer with his followers will alleviate their suffering because he wants to alleviate his own suffering. A leader who profits from the suffering of his followers, well, this is an unsustainable situation. It won't change. So this is not to defend the mob. I'm just trying to give you some perspective. Just before, very briefly, before we dip in some more, the intelligentsia, the well-educated, the eloquent, the leaders of the revolution were the same, but with more syllables. 
they did not have an abstract understanding of the rights of man and UPB and philosophy and the proper role of nature and the state and man and reason. And they weren't philosophers. They weren't original thinkers in that way. They were as equally enraged as the mob, but even more dangerous because the mob I was going to say the mob cannot manipulate the mob, but it kind of can in a way, but it has to be pre-programmed to go in a particular direction. So the mob can rouse each other through rumors, through lies, through that wild collective emotion that grips people who have suffered constantly for years, which I'm not, you know, I'm not complaining about the desire for change. The desire for change becomes inevitable becomes essential. But which way the change goes? Which way the change goes? You understand the cycle of violence that a lot of, let's take a sort of typical example. A boy who was beaten is traumatized by being beaten, but grows up into a father who associates fatherhood with beating and therefore beats his children. In the lack of self-knowledge, in the absence of self-knowledge, in the absence of processing the pain of having been beaten, he says, well, father's beat, my father was a good father, I deserve being beaten, and therefore he will become a father to whom good fatherhood is beating children, and if there is beating of the children, it's because the children deserve it, and it's their fault, and he's just the implacable arm of the noble infliction of virtues, essential for the cultivation of a civilized young man. So the cycle of violence. It's the same in revolutions, for the most part. What happens? Well... The state brutalizes, and therefore those who replace the state become brutalizers. They themselves were brutalized by the state, and therefore when they become the state, they themselves brutalize in turn. And, I mean, of course, you can see this in the darker recesses of the American Revolution as well, that George Washington, upon his ascension to presidency, shortly thereafter, takes 10,000 troops and rides down the farmers who were resisting his whiskey tax meet the new boss, same as the old boss, is a very, very common theme. You have to process the pain of being humiliated in order to avoid becoming a sadist. You have to process the pain of being victimized in order to avoid becoming a brutalizer who victimizes others. You have to put down the sword. If the sword is to be used against you or you must use the sword against others. If it's kill or be killed, dominate or be dominated, subjugate or be subjugated, then most men of pride and resolution will say, well, if there's a sword to be held, I'm going to hold it. I'm not going to be slashed and pummeled to shreds and death. If there's a sword, I'm going to hold it because the alternative is death. This sets, I think, the psychological stage for the revolution. So... Again, I know we're skipping around a little bit. French Revolution began in 1789, ended in the late 1790s with the ascent of Napoleon, with the ascent of Napoleon Bonaparte, which we will get to. We will get to Napoleon in time. But let's talk about 1791. So 1791, the revolution has been brewing and cooking and ascending and descending and poking and prodding and retreating for a year or two. And remember, everything that happens doesn't just happen in France, it happens among the monarchies of the rest of Europe as well. I mean, if you get a wart on your little finger, that's not just your little finger, right? It's your whole uh, body. An infection in your toe could spread to your body. And as early as 1791, these various monarchies of Europe looked at this revolution, looked at this danger to the existing structure and social order, and had their fingers on the hilts of their collective swords. And there were sort of three main reasons, either to support, of course, King Louis XVI, or out of concern that the revolution would spread, or just because there was so much chaos going on in France, maybe they could take some property, take some land. Austria put large numbers of troops on its French border, and together with Prussia, they issued the Declaration of Pilnitz, which basically said, we're going to invade you if anything bad happens to Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette. And of course, 
revolutionaries, the government was outraged and said, pull your troops back. And Austria said, nope. And so France declared war on Austria and Prussia in the spring of 1792. And then both countries coordinated their invasion. Eventually, in September of 1792, they were turned back in the Battle of Valmy. And because this victory against the French and Prussian armies, which were there threatening France, should anything bad happen to the king, because they won in September, the French won in September and pushed back the Prussians and pushed back the Austrians, they said, well, now we can abolish the monarchy. And as is often the case in the shifting tides of war, there was a series of victories by these new French armies. But then there was a huge defeat at Nierwinden in the spring of 1793. They suffered additional defeats throughout 1793. And these defeats and the chaos that resulted allowed the Jacobins to rise to power and impose the reign of terror on the nation, with the supposed goal, of course, of unifying the nation. Unifying the nation. It's like a carpentry analogy. If you want a two-by-four, you have to get rid of anything that is bumpy or uneven or ragged to smooth things down. You have to unify the nation. That means get rid of anything that is not part of your vision. So, in 1791, there were still military actions going on. There was fear of the Prussians, in particular the Austrians, to a smaller degree. So let's talk about the Champ de Mars massacre. This is 17th July, 1791. The Champ de Mars in Paris became the backdrop for a very dark chapter. So there was a controversial decree by the National Constituent Assembly that gave King Louis XVI the title of a constitutional monarch. And, of course, the anti-monarchists, which is to say the people who hated their own fathers, the ardent Republicans were very, very upset about this. So this decree that gave Louis XVI the title of constitutional monarch, vocal disagreement, and there was a petition demanding that the king be ousted. The Champ du Mars, a vast green expanse, saw approximately 50,000 souls gather, hoping to express their dissent by signing this document. Of them, roughly 6,000 penned their names. I don't think the document survived, but I assume there are a fair amount of X's in it. Now, a little earlier that day, two individuals hiding with seemingly malicious intentions were discovered and in the throes of public justice were executed by the crowd. Who knows the facts? Who knows the truth? Who knows the reality? Boy, you know, it's very humbling to look at history and realize just how much contemporary events that are literally on video that can be shared at the push of a screen to everyone in the world, how many people don't believe basic facts that the video of which can be delivered to their back pockets in about a second. It's incredible. So who knows what actually happened, but the two individuals were torn apart, executed by the crowd. Now, when there's a crowd that's tearing people apart, well, the Parisian mayor decided to declare martial law. And this led to the deployment of the National Guards, steered by Lafayette, to scatter the crowd. So as the day unfolded, of course, very tense, 50,000 people, potentially very aggressive, right, in the middle of Paris, this would be like, I guess it would be something like a couple of hundred thousand or maybe half a million very aggressive people taking over Central Park in New York and murdering a couple of dozen people. So as the day unfolded, Danton and Desmoulins, known for their capability to incite crowd fervor and rage, led a more aggressive mob back to the site. Lafayette's reappearance at the Champ de Mars, leading his troops. Of course, he was aiming to bring a sense of order or really subjugation. Very, very tense. And the crowds, of course, weren't just vocal. They began throwing rocks and stones towards the soldiers. Now, it's funny, right? You think of a soldier well-equipped with a sword and a musket. But if he's not allowed to fire back, then from every direction could come a rock that could kill you. And remember, injury, of course, in this time, it wasn't like you were whisked to a modern hospital with great surgical techniques and antibiotics. One cut could kill you. You know, the sort of famous concern that moms have towards injury is evolutionary, right? You say, oh my gosh, he, he just got a scratch. Well, of course, 
in the past, a scratch could kill you. One infection, and you're, you're toast. Right? I mean, I recently was hiking and stepped on a nail, and the doctor who gave me the antibiotics said, uh, well, it uh, can be very bad, right? Nail goes through the boot, takes the plastics and bacteria from your shoe into your bloodstream. could be very bad, right? So one little step on a nail, boom, dead. So Lafayette himself narrowly escaped an assassination attempt. Somebody jumped at him and shot at him, but the assailant's pistol malfunctioned. So there are some exciting things going on. Now, what did the soldiers do? They try and fire warning shots into the air. Did not work. Did not work. And it's not about the monarchy. This is what I really want to get across. These things are not about the monarchy. If you debate at the level of abstractions, you're missing the emotional motivations that are driving people. Did people hate the king? Oh my gosh, I'm so committed to the idea of republicanism that I'm willing to die to keep the king off the throne. No, people are like, okay, well, if the king gets back, gets back in, we can't feed our children. If the king gets back in, we're all going to die. I'm going to watch my children starve to death. So you'd say, my gosh, they were really committed to their abstract ideals. It's like, no, society had gotten to the point where any return to the prior structure meant the death of millions. Also, of course, because there were rumblings of invasions on the border, the Austrians and the Prussians and others, because there were rumblings of invasions on the border, there was a sense that we have to go for it. Like the moment you start getting foreign troops coming in. So if foreign troops are coming in to prop up the king, what happens to the revolutionaries? They're all going to get tortured and killed. The foreign governments are terrified. What if the revolution works? What if they end up happier? What if they end up way better? Then the revolution's going to spread here. We understand that, right? So foreign invasions steal up the resolution of the revolutionaries because they have to win then. They have to win. So the soldiers were firing warning shots, but the crowd stood its ground. Very tense scene. There was the death of two volunteer soldiers. And in response, the National Guard, presumably on Lafayette's orders, fired into the throng, as Napoleon later mentioned, the whiff of grape shot. Now, of course, accounts of the casualties vary based upon propaganda. We see this even in the current world, of course. Some close to Lafayette said only 10 people died. Other reports say as many as 50. And of course, the yellow journalist Marais said, oh no, 400 bodies were stealthily disposed of in the river. Now, this rebellion, this, these murders, these assassination attempts firing into the crowd, this significantly impacted the Republican movement's momentum. Countless activists were arrested, many more driven into hiding. It became clear that the movement had suffered immensely. Moreover, the shadow of that day loomed large over Lafayette, with many in the revolutionary camp seeing him in less favorable light thereafter. February 15, 1792, there was the formation of the criminal tribunal to weed out and torture and murder dissenters. Maximilian Robespierre took up the role of the accuser, but his tenure was fairly short-lived. By April the 10th, 1792, Robespierre stepped down and started a magazine. It's funny to me how magazine means ammo as well as a publication, of course, right? Ammunition. In one of its issues of the magazine, Robespierre and his Jacobin colleagues suggested the creation of a revolutionary army in Paris. And they wanted twenty to, to 23,000 men, which is kind of oddly specific in a way, twenty to 23,000 men, because, you know, 24,000 men would be over- overreach. They say the goal of this revolutionary army is multi-pronged to defend Paris, to champion the revolution's ideals of liberty and equality, to instill order, and to propagate democratic tenets, drawing inspiration from the philosophies of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Any philosopher who does not repeatedly and vociferously advocate for the non-aggression principle is a tool for mass murder in general. If you can create an enforcement for your ideology and still claim to be in accordance with a philosopher, that philosopher has effed up intergalactically, royally. So in the spring and summer of 1792, the unchecked mob still hadn't had their grievances. They still didn't have enough food. They still didn't have liberty. And of course, they weren't going to get it. Their aggressive behavior, the mobs devoid of restraint, seemed to be even more uncontrollable given the meek responses of Louis XVI, who appeared more eager to appease than to oppose. Now, this is a funny thing, because of course, a lot of people will say, well, he should have just used the military to X, Y, and Z to check the mob, to put them back down, and so on. Well, 
you know, when you can't really feed your military and they're not doing well either, it's all an illusion, right? Authority is almost all an illusion. If people stop believing in that illusion, authority evaporates. Well, maybe he had no choice but to oppose. Who knows what information he was being given? The army will not obey your commands, your majesty. Okay, well, that's a piece. Who knows, right? Who knows what the private confabulations were? Some of the bourgeoisie, once the provocateurs of the masses against structures like the Bastille and Versailles, now confronted the repercussions of their actions. Eric Duchmade, a historian, opined that while the king could have been a bulwark against the radicals, the more moderate voices unwittingly ushered in a brutal mob mentality. This growing intensity culminated on August 10, 1792, when Paris witnessed the frenzied mob taking over the Tuileries Palace, driven by military anxieties, poor judgment, misinformation, you name it, right? The royal family, apprehensive and fearful, sought refuge in the National Assembly building. Amidst the chaos, the indecisive Louis XVI, paralyzed by the unfolding terror, commanded his Swiss guards to lay down their arms to surrender unilaterally. Now, in this case, the guards would have fought for him. In this case, the guards would have fought for him. So this was the belief that appeasement to the mob brings peace to the rulers. Appeasement to the mob brings peace to the rulers that you can reason with the mob. That you can reason with your victims, you can reason with the tens or hundreds of thousands of people you've half-starved to death over the course of their lives. No. No. So Louis XVI commands his Swiss guards to lay down their arms, surrender unilaterally. The guards did not believe the command, demanded that it be put in writing. The guard he told to tell everyone else demanded that it be put in writing. So the king wrote down an order stating, we order our Swiss to put down their arms immediately and withdraw to their barracks. Lewis. Well, the Swiss guards laid down their arms and faced the murderous wrath of the boiling-faced mob. Well, it's tragically predictable what happened. There were 600 Swiss guards, well-trained, well-armed, and maybe they would have died anyway. Who knows, right? Who knows? When the mob is more driven by ideology, it can be driven back. When the mob is driven by survival, there's almost no turning it back. It's like fighting the tide with a dagger. More than 600 Swiss guards were tortured and murdered and then defiled. Witnesses reported women shamelessly engaging in unthinkable acts with the dead while children played with severed heads in the hallways of the palace. Women themselves faced unimaginable violence, mass rape, murder torture. The Jacobin Club established its dominance further by insisting on leaving the decaying bodies exposed as a testament to their strength and power. The mutilation of the bodies, when you think, of course, of Christianity and the respect shown to the dead, the mutilation of the bodies is appalling. So foreign diplomats and emissaries saw and heard of all of this, and it was time to get out of Dodge. They fled France as quickly as they could. Now this, you know, and it's hard to say, I'm, I understand the challenge, I understand the contradictions. These noble soldiers were slaughtered by the mob. Well, they were guarding a guy who had half-starved his kingdom into submission, who was engaged in useless wars, who was borrowing, raising taxes. I can see it both ways. <laughs> I can see it. The noble Swiss guards, yeah, well, they were the Praetorian guards of an unholy emperor. So, I don't know. Live by the sword, you get how it runs. So, I mean, trying not to take a side here, right? I'm just trying to give you the facts and the movements behind the facts, the philosophy behind the facts. Now, this exhibition of massive force, torture, slaughter, and horror was later chosen to be memorialized as an annual festival of the unity and indivisibility of the Republic. And you can see this, of course, when horrible acts are memorialized, it's a promise that they will be repeated should anyone else fall out of line. Like the reason that they would praise the mob for murdering its opponents is to remind anyone who opposes the mob that they'll be murdered too in the future, right? These sort of commemorations are about the future. So Louis XVI's decline continued. Of course, he was once an unquestionable, God-given, formidable symbol of authority, but he was captured and the remnants of the monarchy were extinguished. He was now referred to as Citizen Louis Capet, and not to the House of Capet, the lineage of the Bourbon kings, including Louis XVI himself. With his demotion, he was imprisoned and cacophonous chants of death to the king echoed outside his prison. The reins of power were then fully in the hands of the National Convention. But still they feared to kill him because they feared the blowback from 
foreign monarchs, many of course of whom were either distantly or not so distantly related. You know, I talked about this in the truth about the First World War, that the First World War was a family war because almost all of the leaders, certainly of the monarchies, were related to the September Massacre. We're not done. We're not done. It even gets worse. September 2nd to 6th, 1792. So, of course, Maximilien de Robespierre, the dark figure behind the revolution, the future president of the convention, boldly preached a vision, a republic of virtue. Democratic virtues, how bloody they often are. So how was he going to achieve this republic of virtue? How was this nirvana going to be achieved? Well, through a symbiotic intertwining of virtue and terror. To be good, you must be terrorized. To be good, you must be terrorized. You understand that this is a twisted reinterpretation, a secular reinterpretation of the doctrine of original sin and the doctrine that children must be beaten until they are good. Children are born sinful, born evil, born wrong, born bad, born defiant, and they must be beaten and tormented and starved until they become virtuous. So virtue is on the far side of emotional and physical terrorism. So when the people raised this way gain power, what do they do? They say, well, we want to become good. Well, how did we become good? We think of ourselves as good, and we were beaten, tortured, and starved, and whipped as children. So virtue is on the far side of torture and murder. Virtue is the nirvana achieved through violence. This is how they were raised. This is the price of raising children. It, it astounds me, raising children this way. Like, it truly astounds me how people parents are willing to see the shredding and destruction of their entire society, way of life, and their own lives, rather than treat their children well. Well, I guess maybe people haven't made these connections. It's ridiculously obvious. I'd like to say it's bloody obvious, because the blood is obvious. So how do you become good? How do you enforce virtue? You terrorize, torture, and murder people, because that's how the children were raised. This is what is, quote, it was called, quote, progress in the absence of philosophy. Progress in the absence of philosophy is simply escalations of abuse. So if we want people to be good, we must terrorize them, just as we as children, when we were told to be good, we were terrorized. And so the whole country, border to border, was dominated by an overwhelming terror. As the regal bloodline languished in the haunting shadows of the temple prison, the streets bore endless witness to the uncontested reign of the mob. The French, of course, they were grappling with the sting of military setbacks on the international fronts. The aforementioned Austria and Prussia surrendered to their raw emotions, culminating in the bone-chilling September massacres of 1792. As the foreign armies advanced, the mob realized mass slaughter was going to occur if they did not win. And the only way to win, the only way to win was violence, just as when they were children, the only way for their parents to win was violence. The orators of the revolution stoked the fires of the mob and Danton delivered an address in the Legislative Assembly where he specifically targled, targeted individuals seen as internal adversaries. Calling upon the spirit of patriotism, he beckoned for the volunteers to rally to the defense of Paris and bear arms. I mean, he was pretty, pretty frank about it. A failure to respond, be it with personal commitment or weaponry support, would invite the harshest of punishments. For Danton, it was clear the fate of France rested upon its ordinary men and women rising up to weed out potential betrayals from within. As his friend Jean-Paul Marat emphatically declared in his periodical newspaper, let the blood of the traitors flow. That is the only way to save the country. Right. Right. When things go badly, you blame the victims. When things go badly, you blame the victims. I mean, this is common even now in parenting. If something is going wrong, in the family, you blame the children or their peers. You don't take responsibility for yourself. You don't say, I've done wrong as a parent. You blame the children or you blame the peers or you blame the media. You, you take no responsibility yourself, which means the responsibility have to, has to shift to others. Oh, it's TikTok. Oh, it's their peers. Oh, it's social media. Never you as the parent. So when things are going wrong in the revolution and they're losing battles, it can't be because they've done anything wrong. The solution to violence, for those raised in violence, is always more violence. That was the solution to everything as a child. It becomes a solution to everything as an adult. At this time, many Parisians believed that the inmates in the city's prisons, which included not only common criminals, but also many political prisoners and other perceived enemies of the revolution, were plotting to break out of confinement and join forces with external enemies of the revolution, especially the approaching Prussian army. Right. And this, of course, is what happens when you jail, you often with torture, you torture and jail your political opponents. 
while you're creating a fifth column, an internal rebellion potential, right? That they're going to break out of prison and join up with the approaching Prussian forces. So this was the rumor. All the people in prison that we've, we have applauded their imprisonment, they have now become enemies who are going to join with the Prussians and kill us all, or the Austrians and kill us all. This chilling culmination was witnessed on September 2nd, 1792, when a fanatical mob encircled a convoy transporting 24 clergymen. They drew their knives and mercilessly stabbed the defenseless priests. One of the citizens exclaimed to horrified spectators, So this frightens you, does it? You cowards! You must get used to the sight of death! In a futile act of peace, an ascetic priest emerged hoping to pacify the savages, some of whom recognized him as their former spiritual guide. His plea was met with a swift and brutal execution. The bloodthirsty mob persisted in their barbarism until the carts oozed with gore. The maimed remains were then paraded to the prison, where another set of heartless murderers lay in wait, eager to finish off any of the surviving clergymen. Now, I understand I'm really struggling to put one foot on each of these divides, this widening canyon. Was this a tragic murder of unarmed priests? It was. It absolutely was. But the priests were the ones who had sanctified the rule of the royalty, of the king. They had said that the king is put here by God and to disobey the king is to disobey God. They had sanctified the starver and brutalizer and indebtor and conscriptor of the masses. Who is innocent? Who is innocent? The temptation is, and we are like water dripped on the edge of a knife. This is happening right now. We are like water dripped on the edge of a knife. We feel we cannot balance on the knife. We must take one side or the other. We must spill to one side or another. Drop a marble on top of a pyramid. It will bounce down. It will not stay on the top. It will bounce down one side or another. We must take a side. We must take a side. I can see many sides. I can see many sides. Could the, prin- could the king have abdicated and given freedom to the masses? It's hard to see how he would have been invaded. Could the masses have imposed a Jeffersonian-style limited government? It's hard to see how, given the hyper-religiosity of their upbringing, the trauma and torment of their upbringing, combined with the threats from neighboring countries, combined with the massive indebtedness of the nation. Remember, you couldn't just print money back then. Money was a fixed thing. I mean, you could get into debt, but you actually had to deliver gold, which is why they were scraping the gold out of the dusty bottoms of the purses of the masses. There's no good answer when the people are this traumatized. This is why I think sometimes with great sorrow of North Korea, whose population will be traumatized, even if they were to gain total freedom tomorrow, their population will be traumatized for generations to come. Trauma changes your DNA. The whole purpose of philosophy is not to say who's right or wrong in these kinds of torments. The whole purpose of philosophy is to prevent these kinds of torments from coming into being in the first place, which is why I'm off politics. So, historian Timothy Tackett writes, The obsession with a prison conspiracy, the desire for revenge, the fear of the advancing Prussians, the ambiguity over who was in control of a state that had always relied in the past on a centralized monarchy, all had come together in a volatile mixture of anger, fear, and uncertainty. Brutality then descended on a Carmelite convent from the revolutionaries. There, 150 priests faced, quote, revolutionary trials under the shadow of a mob, armed not just with hatred for Christianity, but with deadly weapons. Their viciousness knew no bounds as they took the life of the first priest they encountered. The archbishop's courage in confronting them was met with merciless death. Many priests seeking refuge in a nearby church were not spared. They had but moments to offer each other last rites before being torn apart. And after this carnage, the revolutionaries subjected the survivors to a mockery of justice with their farcical trials. Under life-threatening pressure, with blades to their throats, the priests who remained were coerced into swearing an oath of loyalty. None yielded to this blasphemy, even under the looming shadow of death. Their steadfast faith led them to a horrific end. Each one was butchered in broad daylight. Their discarded remains were later discovered as 119 skeletons in fields and wells, a silent testament to this atrocity. The priests who had traumatized the children, the priests who had supported the king, the the priests who had been willing as a second estate to take power over the multitude, the priests who had their food, 
who is innocent. We're in a state of nature at this point. Philosophy has failed. Reason has failed. It is a war of all against all nature red in tooth and claw. We say, why did the mob hate the clergy so much? Why did they slaughter and butcher and hack off the breasts of nuns? Why? Well, the nuns were very violent towards the children and beat them mercilessly. Who is innocent in the absence of reason? In the absence of reasons? In the absence of philosophy? In the absence of thought, innocence and guilt become manipulative abstractions used for purposes of propaganda. And of course, when everyone is addicted to a philosopher who says, abandon reason and live by your instincts, well, the instincts of man are the instincts of beasts very often. So the idea that when you have rational philosophers saying Living accord- live according to reason, and you have emotionalists, mystics of the gut saying live according to unchecked passion, and you choose to listen to unchecked passion, well, you get just this kind of horrifying slaughterhouse of a planet. When you voluntarily flee the rational city to live in the bestial jungle, don't be surprised when the law of the jungle becomes the physics of the land. In one grotesque act, a revolutionary brute ripped out a nobleman's heart, flaunting it, demanding, do you want to see the heart of an aristocrat? The savage then proceeded to drip the heart's blood into his wine and shared this ghastly concoction with onlookers. A young girl was compelled to drink the human blood in a desperate bid to save her father's life. Now, what is happening here? What is, why would he be so desperate to pull out the heart of a nobleman? Well, of course he was a sadist and a psychopath and, and so on. We get all of that. But why is it remembered? Because... He is attempting to pull down the nobles from the ranks of the divine and call them by their proper names mere mortal humans. What was oppressing the people? Unreality. Who was promoting some of this unreality? The clergy, to some degree, for sure. And the nobleman. The nobleman said, we are better than you, we are divine, we are appointed by God to rule over you. But when you pull out his heart and he dies, the unreality, in a murderous fashion, is slaughtered to murder delusion. Now, to destroy delusion is the job of philosophy, but if philosophy is not accepted, then the delusions are murdered for real. This is why you refer to Louis XVI not as a divine king. You grab him, you throw him in jail, you call him a citizen. Capet. He's not Louis XVI, sovereign of France, appointed by God. He's Louis Capet. Some guy, just some dude, just some guy. No magic penumbra, no divine right of kings, no God supporting him. And we have to go from these predatory abstractions of royalty, divine right of kings, we have to go from these predatory abstractions to mere muscular, murderous meat. The mind without the body in delusory abstractions or the body without the mind in murderous predation. Well, there is a hunger for the truth, and the truth is not being transmitted conceptually, and therefore the truth has to be exposed mechanically. It's similar to an addict, right? So an addict, uh, let's say a gambling addict, and everyone says, hey man, you got to stop gambling, it's really, really bad for you. That's just an abstraction. When does he usually stop gambling? When the empiricism of his actions have almost destroyed his life. When he's hit rock bottom, when he wakes up in a ditch, having been beaten up by some criminals he owes money to, he's lost everything. He's got to the truth of his addiction through brutal empiricism. He's got to the truth. He's exposed and uncovered and turned around the truth of his delusions. The delusion is, hey, man, gambling's fun. Hey, man, I totally have it under control. Hey, man, I'm just out to have a good time. Hey, man, it's fine. Well, that's his delusion. What destroys his delusion is absolutely unarguable, unequivocal proof that it is a delusion It's not fun, he's not in control, it's costing him everything, and next time he's going to die. You see, he accelerates his negative actions in order to impress upon his own mind the actual facts behind his delusions. And France, in its history, as it is currently, is gripped by delusion. How do you fight through delusions? You either do it intellectually or you do it brutally. This is why I'm constantly saying, let's do it through reason. Let's learn through reason, not through brute empirical evidence. 
There was no such thing as the nobility. There was no such thing as the divine right of kings. There was no such thing as the virtue and inevitable authority of the aristocracy. These were all delusions. We either argue this and understand this and debate this and learn this rationally, or someone's going to have to hold up a nobleman's heart and says, he's dead. Where is his God? Where is his divine power? Where is his divine might? Now, they're trying to get to the truth through brutality because they were unwilling to follow it through reason. The mob made a spectacle in celebration of brutal slaughter. The murder of Marie Gredelier was one such public attraction. She was bound to a timber, and her breasts were butchered as her feet were nailed to the ground spread eagle. Then a bonfire was set alight between her legs. Why was there such a focus on the torture of the reproductive organs of the males, and in particular the females? Because the aristocracy was hereditary. These were magic penises, magic testicles, magic vaginas, magic ovaries, magic sperm and eggs. Magic! And they brutalized this in order to reject the magic that kept them enslaved. You are addicted to unreality, you are enslaved by language. And one of the lies of the aristocracy was that our nobility and the divine right of our rule is passed hereditarily, and therefore to attack the genitals and the reproductive organs of the breasts, the nurturing breasts, of the aristocracy was to attack the hereditary nature of their power. And, of course, it's not beyond our comprehension, though it is sickening to picture the men and women who had been farmed out to wet nurses hated breasts. I know it sounds all kinds of Freudian, but this is how deep some of this stuff goes. Brutality is rooted in the very earliest conceptions, in our very earliest experiences. If you're brutalized as a baby, you're capable of great brutality as an adult. And the more brutality you see manifested, the more brutal infancy was for these people. Why did they hate breasts so much that they kept cutting off, savaging, and mutilating breasts? This happened continually, particularly to the nuns. Well, they either weren't breastfed, or they were breastfed by angry, bitter, resentful, murderous, wet nurses. It's not an accident. Worse still was the fate of Princess Lamballe. She was best friend to the queen and helped manage her household. The crowd leveled numerous allegations at the reserved and delicate princess, including that she had a sexual relationship with the queen. Now, remember, in order for the mob to whip itself into a murderous frenzy, they need to coach you with negative language, right? That mass slander is a preparation for mass murder. And you can see this, of course, in the Rwandan genocide where they referred to the other side as cockroaches. And uh, you can see this, of course, with the communists and the kulaks and the Germans and the Jews. You can see this vile and vicious language has to coat. Verbal abuse precedes physical abuse. And this, of course, is the pattern. This, of course, is the pattern. In parenting, you call your kids names and then you hit them. And you don't hit your kids out of nowhere because you have to have a, quote, moral justification for hitting your children. So you say you're a bad kid, you're a disobedient kid, you're a little S-H-I-T, as comes out of Kramer versus Kramer, right? You have to verbally abuse your children, and then you can hit them. And so you have to verbally abuse someone you want to do violence to, and then you can do violence to them, which is why I'm out of politics, right? It makes sense, right? I know all of this stuff. Following the assault at the palace of Tuileries, Lamballe was transferred to a La Fosse prison and separated from the royal household. Now, the prior year, Princess Lambelle had traveled to England, seeking British intervention in the affairs of the revolution. Her return to France was driven by her deep allegiance to Marie Antoinette. Her decision to draft her final will during her time at England hints at her foresight of the impending events. Now, of course, those who have no emotional bonds can't perceive of morality and loyalty. And so the fact that the princess returned just to be with the queen, they couldn't imagine that that would be out of friendship or loyalty or love or affection or connection or a bond. The only thing they could imagine is, why would she come back? Oh, because she, they're having sex together. They're a, lesbi- they're a lesbian couple. That's the only reason she would come back. She couldn't come back for loyalty or love or caring. or right. So if you don't have any capacity to pair bond, if you don't have any love or loyalty or virtue in your life, you can't imagine how people could possibly be acting on virtue, so you have to reduce it to its most carnal and physical 
motivation. Sex, in this case, right? So, Princess Lambelle was forcibly removed from her jail cell and presented to a revolutionary court overseen by Jacques Hébert. This, of course, is a very common phenomenon in which those who have surrendered to corrupting immorality have to corrupt those who remain moral. And they have to say, everyone becomes immoral, it's just a matter of the right pressure. And this way they say, I did not become immoral, I was simply subjected to particular pressures, and therefore you want to reproduce that corruption in others to say that it wasn't me. To say that it wasn't me. If you can imagine some kid wanders into a swamp that he's told not to go into, he gets sick from the swamp gases, and his parents say, you got sick because you disobeyed me, then they're blaming him for the swamp, right? They're saying, you got sick because you disobeyed me. Now, the kid may somehow lure his father in to the swamp and say the father then gets sick from the swamp gases, and the kid says, aha, you see, it wasn't disobedience, it's the swamp gases. It's not me. It was the circumstances of the environment. Those who are torn apart by circumstances wish to tear others apart by circumstances to prevent any conscience from attacking themselves, right? Sorry, that was poorly phrased. Let me do it again. Those who surrender their potential virtue to brute circumstances want to say that everyone does that and therefore they will impose brute circumstances on others to corrupt them so that they don't have to face their own conscience that says you could have done better, you could have chosen better, you are not dictated to by circumstances, you are not a mere shadow cast by your environment. You have a choice, you always had a choice. And because they pretend to themselves that they have no choice, they then have to destroy choice in others by subjecting them to the same brutal circumstances that destroyed their own integrity. So let's follow Princess Lebelle into her revolutionary court, overseen by Jacques Hébert. Jacques-René Hébert was a journalist from France who rose to political power during the French Revolution. His followers frequently voiced that a larger number of nobles should be scrutinized, criticized, and put to death. They believed that for revolutionary France to truly transform, it was essential to eradicate its old and purportedly harmful aristocracy. Hébert had a deep respect for the revolution's extreme actions, confidently proclaiming that the world would soon be home to only an enlightened community of atheists and republicans. No priests, no kings. No priests, no kings. Who had done the most harm to the population? The priests and the kings. And the idea that you can murder those who've done you harm and thus will become rational is a great delusion. Plenty of people have done me harm. I pursue reason as my victory. Hébert insisted that Princess Lambal pledge, quote, devotion to liberty and to the nation and hatred to the king and queen, warning her of fatal consequences if she declined. Princess Lambal responded that she would commit to the initial oath, liberty and to the nation, but could never agree to the latter, stating, it is not in my heart, the king and queen I have ever loved and honored. Well, she has a bond, Right or wrong, she has a bond. It was not enough. You can't just survive by honoring evil. You have to dishonor good. And the good is her bond, her love. It was not enough. Princess Lambal was thrown to the mob, gang-raped and torn apart. Her breasts and genitalia were hacked and removed by the sans-culotte multitude. Her head was torn off and her mutilated corpse was paraded around for the crowd to jeer at. Her heart was removed and eaten, and I quote, after having roasted it on a cooking stove in a wine shop. A leg of hers was hacked off, inserted into a cannon, and fired into the sky. Her head and privates were then stuck on spears and flaunted past Marie Antoinette's prison window, with the crowd shouting for Marie to kiss her lover, kiss her lover. Whether this was an honorable bond, I can't possibly tell. They seem to have been decent women. And this is what Marie Antoinette got to see after the crowd had loved her for many years. You see this focus on the breasts and genitalia. Now, some were becoming uneasy at this brutality. And you get a vague sense that the mob that you have aroused against your enemies will sooner or later turn on you. The mob that used to love Marie Antoinette now tortures her by parading the mutilated body of who they assume to be her lover past her window as she is in prison. That the mob that you have used against your enemies will be used against you. So some were becoming uneasy. And the growing power of men like Danton and Robespierre. Robespierre, when challenged in the assembly, 
famously retorted, and I quote, I will not remind you that the sole object of contention dividing us is that you have instinctively defended all acts of new ministers, and we, of principles, that you seem to prefer power, and we, equality. Why don't you prosecute the commune, the legislative assembly, the sections of Paris, the assemblies of the cantons, and all who imitated us? For all these things have been illegal, as illegal as the revolution, as the fall of the monarchy and of the Bastille, as illegal as liberty itself. Citizens, do you want a revolution without a revolution? What is this spirit of persecution which has directed itself against those who freed us from chains? Yes, after you have overthrown all bonds of society, all prior rules, who is anyone to say what new rules are illegitimate? This is all power. These are not rules of philosophy, of logic, of reason. These are not universally preferable behaviors. You have broken through mystical rules to a place of no rules, like post-Christian, post-modernism. And when there are no rules, we are in a state of nature. The law of jungle is the only rule. The strong do what they will. The weak suffer what they must.